everybody. This is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast, part of the Demcast family of podcasts. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. Today, as part of our town hall series in partnership with the Washington Indivisible Network and Indivisible Tacoma, we present two Democratic candidates for the state legislature from the 35th Legislative District. Join us for a conversation with Darcy Huffman and Colton Myers, recorded live on the evening of Tuesday, June 30th. Hello, everybody. Welcome to tonight's Indivisible Town Hall. My name is Stephen Cox. I am the host of the Washington State Indivisible podcast. I will be your host and moderator this evening. A big thanks to Kat Pipkin with the Washington Indivisible Network and Julie Unjewski with Indivisible Tacoma. Special thanks to Robin Gittleman. Thanks also to Susan Brooks-Young for her help tonight. And of course, thanks to all of you for joining us live tonight. Uh, or you may be listening on the podcast, or you may be listening on one of the terrestrial radio stations here in the state that carry the podcast. In any event, we are so glad that you are with us tonight because we are going to be speaking with two wonderful candidates for representative from the 35th Legislative District. This is a district that includes all of Mason County and parts of Thurston and Kitsap counties. So here's how tonight is going to go for you. We're going to begin by asking each candidate to say hi, introduce him or herself, and then we're going to move on to a series of platform questions. We received a number of platform questions already from you. I will do my best to work any questions that you might have tonight into the program, so kindly enter those into the chat bar. We have a lot of ground to cover, and because we only have an hour tonight, I'm going to ask the candidates to try to limit their responses to around two minutes per question and then not use the full two minutes if they don't have to. And so with that, let's go ahead and meet our candidates. Colton Myers is a health policy analyst for the state of Washington with a master's in public policy from the University of Washington. He is running for representative in position one. Darcy Huffman is the vice president-elect for the Southwest Washington Synod of the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America. She recently served as the resource and communication director at the Lutheran Church of the Good Shepherd in Olympia. She is running for representative in position two. Colton Myers and Darcy Huffman, it is such a pleasure. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. It's good to be here. Well, let's get started. So, Darcy, let's start with you. Um, Take a moment to introduce yourself. Talk about some of your personal experiences and achievements and things that you feel that have prepared you for the job of representative. Okay. Well, thank you so very much for having me today. I'm really excited to be here. So I'll start by saying that I have uh, 25 years of banking, retail, and finance and risk management experience. So I have done everything from help teachers balance their checkbooks to uh, set home mortgage rates. And so I have a lot of experience uh, with that. And I believe that that will help me bring in experience in balancing budgets, looking at the budget in a different way, which we are definitely going to have to do uh, this this year, for this next coming years. Um, I also have over nine years of experience as a resource and communications director for for a large Lutheran church in in Olympia. And what that brings is a, 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 a gift of listening. So, and I think that that is one of the most important things that a legislator can do is to listen to people's problems, listen to people's concerns, and then be able to formulate, maybe not being able to solve the problem, but at least letting know that that person has been heard and that you will do everything that you can to do that. So we bring in 
all my banking experience on top of my on top of my experience in the nonprofit world and together along with government I think we can help solve some of the problems that are facing people in the 35th Okay, wonderful. And thank you so much for that. Colton Myers, let's introduce you now. Uh, a few words about yourself and some of your personal experiences and things that you feel that have prepared you for the job of representative. Absolutely. Well, thank you again for having us on tonight. I appreciate the opportunity to, of course, elevate the 35th LD. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Colton Myers. I'm running for position one of the 35th, uh, running against Republican incumbent Dan Griffey. And I personally believe I bring the lived experience, the professional background, and the educational background needed to execute this job appropriately. Um, I'm a third-generation district resident. I grew up in the Kitsap County part of the 35th LD and now live, of course, in the Thurston County part of the LD. And so I've sort of lived on both fringe ends. I grew up as a you know young LGBTQ individual in a community that didn't actively embrace me at a time. Um, and so growing up, you know, as a young person, as a young LGBTQ person, having, you know, uh, negative uh, comments and, and thoughts reinforced against me, I know how important it is to champion, um, you know, diversity, inclusiveness, um, and equity in our community, how important it is to elevate diverse voices. In terms of my educational background, as you mentioned, you know, I got my master's degree in public policy. Um, I studied everything from poverty and anti-poverty policy to advanced budgeting with Dwight Dively, who runs the King County budgets. Um, I have studied economics, and I learned how to craft policy through a social justice and equitable lens. Um, in terms of my professional background, you know, I work in public health, which is very timely right now. Um, actually, during my graduate studies, I was working out in Mason County as part of a, an opioid stakeholder group. We were developing a strategic response plan to the opioid epidemic, and it's there that I got a firsthand look both into the co-occurring challenges facing our district and the absence of our leadership at the table. Um, and that continues with my professional experience. Um, we have representatives who do not put the community interests first. Um, and by every metric, the 35th district has fallen behind in terms of economic outcomes, in terms of uh, access to health and educational opportunities. Um, and so really, I'm running because I'm trying to give a voice to our constituents once more. I believe that our representatives have not done a good job advocating for the best interests of our community, advocating for uh, the resources and opportunities that our district needs. And I'm ready to put our community interests first. Well, terrific. And it's it's great to hear from both of you. And I will just say in advance that you've both hit on so many questions that we will unpack uh, throughout the course of the evening. Um, I would like to start with something that is very top of mind for a lot of people right now, which is the reopening, the COVID reopening. And Darcy, we'll start with you on this. Uh, we are seeing a dramatic spike in COVID cases across the state right now. Uh, both Thurston and Mason counties have been approved for phase three opening. And I'll just ask you, how do you assess the, the progress that the 35th has made thus far against the pandemic? And would you do anything differently? Well, I just spent today in uh, Mason County, as a matter of fact, and I was really pleased to see the number of people that uh, were wearing masks and that people were very serious about that. I think one of the benefits of uh, Mason County is that it is such a rural county that um, you know people don't live close together. There's very little public transportation. Uh, it's not like they have big areas where or areas where they can where they can uh, commingle a lot. So uh, I think that's one of the reasons that they have not had seen a spike in 
in um, in the COVID nineteen. I think also. Um, that that could come as uh, people start coming into the county, uh, people from outside um, as they're starting to to, um, to do their voting and to do their RVing and those kinds of things. So I think that it's really important that people wear their masks and that um, and that we're very careful about um, eating inside. Um, and 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 taking this thing really very seriously. Colton, same question to you. I, I would love your assessment of, and you know, Darcy mentioned uh, Mason County. I would love, since you're from Thurston, maybe your assessment of how things are moving along in Thurston, and if you would be doing anything differently as a legislator at this point. Absolutely. Uh, thank you. You know, I just want to preface in saying the 35th is so regionally vast and, um, you know, it covers three counties. So it's difficult to put a one size fits all answer. Um, what I will say and what I want to say is I have the utmost confidence in the people that are leading response efforts throughout those three counties. You know, I have a sister in public health in Kitsap County who's on the front line of response efforts who gives me updates about what's happening in Kitsap. Uh, I, of course, have worked with the top community health and safety leaders in Mason County who lead the opioid response and also are leading this pandemic response. Um, and of course, I work in healthcare in Thurston County and I'm surrounded by people who are leading response efforts here. Um, I also had an opportunity actually to previously work with Dr. Diana Yu, who up until recently was leading the Thurston County uh, response efforts. She was working out in Mason when I was uh, helping with developing a strategic response plan. So, you know, what I want to say is, I feel confident in saying that those who are on the front lines right now are capable, they're compassionate, um, you know, they're evidence-driven individuals who are doing everything that they can uh, to guide our community safely through this pandemic. In terms of, of course, what we could do differently or a difference in approach, I'm someone who, of course, likes to approach policy somewhat through a, a collective impact approach. Um, and I believe that there's areas, there's always areas of opportunity per se, um, you know, to improve regional communication, information and resource sharing, um, especially as we approach this newer surge. I think, you know, we're not yet out of the first surge. This is kind of a resurgence of the surge. Um, and, uh, you know, being from the healthcare perspective, I think we're understanding that we're all still waiting for the second surge. And unfortunately, you know, if I could just say really briefly, I was disheartened to see Thurston County report 11 cases today that were people ranging from their 10s, 20s, and 30s. So we have a lot of work to do in terms of telling young people that they are not invincible and that they need to be practicing these guidelines that are set forth to save lives. Well, another potential obstacle here, and I'll, I'll stay with you on this, Colton, is that a Thurston County Sheriff has said publicly that he will not enforce Governor Inslee's mask mandate. How would you respond to that as a legislator? Yeah, so I mean, as mentioned, I'm sort of newer to Thurston County, so I've been getting caught up to speed on uh, the law enforcement down here. You know, I'd like to believe that uh, John Sanza, who's the Thurston County Sheriff, doesn't hold the same beliefs that his twin brother does, Robert, who, as we know, is the Lewis County Sheriff who actively encouraged Washingtonians uh, to disobey the mandate and actually use those words, don't be a sheep. Um, you know, I think when we talk about this, that being said, the decision of whether or not to wear a mask should not be an indicator of partisanship. It should not be a, a matter of opinion, if you will. This is a safety issue. Um, this is a matter of life or death for many, and it needs to be treated as such. Um, you know, 
to briefly play a little bit of devil's advocate, you know, I understand a lot of law enforcement agencies are trying to come at this from the, you know, we'd rather educate than having to enforce. Um, especially, you know, I was looking at some data beforehand seeing Thurston County ranked, I believe it was 37th out of 39 uh, Washington counties in terms of staffing. So I was trying to think of that in context of, you know, there's a lot of domestic response uh, domestic violence responses that are happening right now during this pandemic. Uh, and so obviously a lot of resources need to be devoted to that. But, <laughs> there's a but, uh, you know, as we're seeing a surge in these cases, you know, even before a second wave, wave, we need to be taking this seriously. And to me, that means consequences for people who willingly disobey the mandate, period. I will shift over and, and put the same question to you, Darcy. Um, Thurston County Sheriff is just not going to enforce the mask mandate. So how do you respond to that as a legislator? Well, I'm disappointed in that for sure. Um, and I do agree with Colton that, that we we need to, if we have a rule, we need to have consequences if you don't follow that rule. As a parent, I can tell you it doesn't do a whole lot of good to have a rule if you're not gonna, if you're not gonna enforce it. Um, on the other hand of that, I think that there is an education approach. I think that for uh, the sheriff to be handing out uh, masks when somebody is not wearing them and politely asking them to, to, uh, to wear a mask is probably more beneficial than handing them a ticket, which they may or may not pay. I also think that there are a lot of other things that our sheriff's department can be doing besides handing out tickets for not wearing masks. Um, I There are lots of uh, domestic, there's a lot of domestic violence going on. There's a lot of other issues that they need to be taking care of. So I'm not sure as a legislator that I would um, really be able to do particularly anything about anything about it. Um, but I would say that as a legislator, I should uh, wear a mask myself. And so to make sure that, uh, and set an example. And it's only when you can set an example can you really be a judge of other people. So I think, um, I think that's one of the most important things that we can do as candidates, as well as legislators, that, that we, need to be, we need to be wearing masks and we need to be setting the example. Well, speaking of setting the example, I, I want to touch on something. I want to talk next about the, the issue of racial equity, which is also very top of mind for a lot of people. And you said something very interesting on your Facebook page in reference to the uprisings in response to the police killings of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor and others. You wrote, quote, I believe that with great disruption comes great opportunity. This is not the time to wish for things to go back to normal. This is a time for all of us to unite around a shared belief that we can no longer stand by and do nothing. And so as a legislator, I'll ask you bluntly, what would you do uh, to create a more just and equitable uh, society, culture for BIPOC people, not just in the 35th, but in all of Washington? So I think, again, leading by example is a very important thing to do. So one of the things I'm doing from on with my campaign is that on a biweekly basis, we're gathering, I'm gathering people together and uh, talking about uh, we're all watching a movie and then we're all having a conversation about racism. So the first movie that we watched was uh, 13th, which is about the 13th Amendment. Very powerful uh, documentary that was done. Uh, on Friday, we'll be uh, talking about I Am Not Your Negro, 
which is also a very powerful documentary. And, um, and so I think having a conversation about that is very, very important. I think also from a, I think also having setting an example to have a, a diverse staff is also very important and not just a diverse staff to have one, but have a diverse staff that you listen to because it doesn't do any good if you to have diversity around you if you don't pay attention to what they're telling you. I think the last thing that I would do is to make sure that any law that is passed, any including our budget, right, has to be looked at through a racial justice lens. And you have to stop and say, is this law going to do what I want it to do? And is this law going to be fair? Is this law going to treat everybody the same? Is it going to, is it going to cause more harm than good in a racial justice way? And, and being able to say, okay, I think, this is, I think this is good, or being able to say, no, this is not good because it, is, because it is, does not fit that criteria. Hold that thought as well and put a pin in that if you would, because we have a series of questions related to the budget and uh, we will return to that theme for sure. Uh, Colton, let's turn over to you on this. Uh, And you have talked a little bit about equity issues. And I would uh, be curious for your take on how you would work both as a legislator and as, you know, just a a leader, an individual uh, to create a more just and equitable society for BIPOC people here in the state. Sure, absolutely. Um, you know, I want to start and preface, of course, while I am an LGBTQ individual, I'm also a cis white male. So there's a lot of privilege that comes with that. Um, and I just want to say, too, I'm going to use a little bit of triggering language. Um, you know, I grew up in a community, again, that didn't always make me feel like I had a place. Uh, I had a lot of people growing up who would call me faggot before I had a chance to understand who I was. I had a lot of people who told me to kill myself because of who I was or who I didn't know I was at that time. Um, And so I have grown up knowing how critical it is that people are seen, that they are heard, and that they feel valued. Um, In terms of what we are facing right now, I think it's really important to mention, at least in terms of my opponent, and I'm sure the same can be said of Darcy's opponent, Um, words and lack thereof matter, as do actions. Uh, My opponent, of course, has voted against the LGBTQ community. He voted against uh, ending the dangerous and deadly practice known as conversion therapy. I've had friends put through conversion therapy. I know the long-term trauma that conversion therapy causes. The UN has, in fact, called for the end of conversion therapy. Uh, He has stood against immigrants in our community. Uh, He voted against the Keep Washington Working Act. He voted against DACA, a widely bipartisan supported bill. Um, And it matters in this moment as we are reckoning with our 400-year history of racism that the representative has not said a single word about Black Lives Matter. He has not uttered a single word. That matters. And so when we talk about first and foremost, uh, you know, what I would do as a legislator, first it's getting a legislator in those seats who actually values diversity, equity, and inclusion. That is priority number one. 
Uh, number two, of course, as a legislature is as a legislator is again. I have always viewed policy through a social justice and equitable lens. Uh, I know from a perspective of being an LGBTQ individual, there's a lot of disparities when it comes to socioeconomic outcomes, behavioral health outcomes, and those disparities, of course, are across the board when you factor in uh, intersectionalism, when you factor in racial identities, when you factor in being indigenous, uh, you know, economic outcomes behavioral health outcomes, all of those worsen. And so, you know, my goal as a legislator in a lot of instances is getting to root causes of uh, social determinants of health, getting to root causes of racism and crafting policy that is inclusive, that lifts up our communities, particularly our marginalized communities. That is my promise as a legislator to our, you know, marginalized, our indigenous, our immigrant, our people of color and our LGBTQ individuals in our community. There is so much overlap with everything that you're you're talking about here. Uh, I do want to shift over a little bit to something that is directly related to the conversation nationally right now, which is police accountability. And Colton, we'll stay with you on this question. The protests and uprisings have sparked a lot of debate about police oversight specifically. And I'll ask you, because there's been a lot of questions at the municipal level, at the federal level, uh, in terms of what the you know who who should ultimately be responsible for for holding police to account? What do you believe the state's role is, and specifically the legislature's role in holding police accountable for their actions? Absolutely. Um, and if I may, I kind of want to start with a little bit of a personal story. So uh, this is obviously a topic that is you know intersects with my family. Um, I have a brother who is a local law enforcement sergeant for Kitsap County. And I have a brother-in-law who is black. Um, I can love both of my brothers and still acknowledge uh, that the system currently persecutes one of them for being black. Um, you know, I can love my brother and demand accountability for a system that is targeting black bodies. Uh, because the reality is the system burdens both of my brothers. Uh, but what I like to tell people and what I try and tell people in this debate you know, when my brother goes to bed, uh, he gets to take off his burden with his uniform. But my brother-in-law has to go to bed, get up, get his kids ready, go to work and go about his day as a black man in America. And as we know, being a black man in America for a lot of people is not a badge of honor. It's a fear. It's a fear of maybe it's your last day on this earth because you don't know if one wrong gesture or one wrong word is going to lead to your life being lost. Um, and so this is obviously a very important topic to me, um, you know, in terms of changing the culture around, you know, policing, use of force, systemic uh, racism, we have to have ongoing trainings, systems of accountability, um, and consequences. Um, and to me, that is where I believe that the legislature can really step in. I think our job can be to facilitate conversations, bringing stakeholders to the table, the NAACP, bringing civil rights organizations to the table to develop accountability metrics for our local law enforcement, to review kind of our uh, de-escalation training and metrics, um, and analyzing and clarifying the role of policing in our state. Um, I think there's been, I've been reading some articles about just some ideas that have been thrown around, you know, some tangible ideas that we could achieve in the legislature, some of which is, you know, ending the revolving door that enables fired cops to be reinstated through their union. 
through an appeals process, um, you know, making misconduct records public. Uh, because as we saw in previous instances with these last few murders of black men, those law enforcement officers had multiple misconducts, but no one knew about that until it was too late. Um, and then in addition, of course, there's other areas that the legislature can step in. We need to be, of course, investing further in uh, mental health crises response. Um, we need to be looking again at our de-escalation practices. Um, and one thing that I think is really critical that we should be looking at is, you know, preventing our law enforcement from acquiring surplus military equipment. So those are some, you know, tangible ways in which we as legislators can take tangible actions to do something to mitigate this this pandemic that is racism and systemic racism in our in our uh, country and and that's you know perpetrating in our law enforcement. Same question to you then, Darcy, and uh, you know specifically on the the question of the state's role and and the state legislature's role in holding police accountable. How do you see the equation? So today, um, Bob Ferguson recommended to the state legislature that the law enforcement should be required to report all deadly force uh, instances uh, to a database that would be, uh, that is actually the FBI has a database that is now voluntary. Uh, There are a few counties in the state that actually do that. Pierce County is one that actually reports to that. Um, but this would be a requirement that all counties report to this FBI database and that it is made available to the public. So the public can then see um, who, where the deadly force uh, incidences are and, um, and, and be aware of that. Um, we also had in 2018, we also had IA 940 passed. It was a, it was an initiative that indicated that um, made it mandatory that an independent um, board review the use of force incidents. And um, it's now time to review that and make sure that those that that particular law is being enforced. And um, and and again, that those incidences are made. Uh, public to the um, made public. Um, And I think that that is one of the things that we can do. And we can do that right now. Um, You know, we don't have to wait for studies. We don't have to wait. But that is something that we can do right now and is pretty and is immediate. And I think that that's what the public is looking for. Um, uh, That people want something done now, not day after tomorrow, not two years from now. They want things done now. This, of course, is a, a conversation that I think we could probably have uh, for most of the rest of the show. But I do want to move on to some other issues, including economic development in the 35th. We do know that large parts of the 35th are struggling. Uh, the median income in the 35th is below the state average. And in Mason County in particular, 16 percent of residents live below the poverty line. And that was before COVID. Um, Darcy, let's stay with you. What do you feel that you could do to bring in new employment and development to the 35th? Well, the first thing I think I could do is to um, not be against clean energy. So I think that uh, having an environmental policy that says, yes, um, there is uh, climate change and we need to do something about that uh, would be very helpful. So there are all kinds of clean energy jobs that are available. We just need to get them into the 35th. 
Uh, and, um, and I really believe that we can do that as long as we have legislators that uh, believe in climate change and, um, and that we can do something about it. So that would be the first thing that, that I would do. I think also it is time for us to look at the Growth Management Act, which prohibits some growth within these, within these um, uh, counties. Can you and, remind us, I'm sorry to jump in, can you, we, we discussed this ahead of time, can you just remind viewers what the Growth Management Act is? So the Growth Management Act was in uh, was uh, put into place in 1989, and what it really does is protect farmland and and forests because once you've paved over farmlands and forests, you can't ever get them back. And it was put into to, to protect those two beautiful things that we have so much of in in um, Mason County, Thurston County, and Kitsap County. We, it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful place to live, and we do need to protect that. But what has happened is a 30-year-old law, right? And, and it needs to be reviewed, and it needs to be revised. So we've had lots of innovative things come across, uh, happen within those 30 years that will enable us to do some building, that would enable us to uh, create more homes and do it safely while protecting our beautiful forests and our beautiful farmland. So I know for sure that before COVID-19, that the uh, Growth Management Act was up for review. Um, I'm not sure. I think we're gonna be spending a lot of time putting out fires in this particular, in this next session. Uh, but I know that it is on the front burner for, um, for the environmental um, committee to, to, uh, to review that. And, and, um, and I would certainly like to be a part of that. Well, once again, uh, you're, you're anticipating a future question that we will definitely unpack uh, in full uh, in just a moment. But I want to stay on economic development with you, Colton. Um, what do you feel that you could do to bring development and, and employment to the 35th? Absolutely. So I want to jump on a, a couple of points. One, uh, I completely agree with Darcy about bringing clean energy environmental jobs in, particularly having representatives who believe in basic climate science. Uh, Representative Griffey has a whopping 12% lifetime voting record from the Washington conservation voters. Um, and we see the ramifications of that. Uh, it was Congressman Kilmer who informed us that Taylor Shellfish, uh, which is a major economic boon to Mason County, had shifted part of its business practices overseas to Hawaii because of coastal acidification. So, you know, we need representatives who understand basic climate science to preserve the businesses, A, that we already have in Mason County, uh, and to also bring in clean energy jobs. Um, and with that, I also would, you know, obviously promote bringing in good union livable wage jobs. Uh, it's one thing to, you know, bring in jobs, but I would prefer, of course, that we bring in good union livable wage jobs that support workers' safety, that uh, promote hazard pay. You know, my opponent, of course, has an abysmal record again when it comes to protecting union rights. He's voted against prevailing wage standards. He's voted against collective bargaining rights. He's voted against uh, raising the minimum wage, uh, which gets right to your point of, you know, median household income levels being well below the average. They're over $10,000 below the average in Mason County. Um, and in addition to that, of course, you know, I think some other areas of opportunity, we need to be championing minority owned businesses. 
um, and promoting a community, again, that encourages, encourages diversity and innovation. Uh, in Mason County alone, we have a sizable Latinx community that in a lot of ways lives in the shadows because we have representatives who use rhetoric as if it's coming from the federal government. Um, and a lot of those communities are afraid to call this place home as a result. Um, and in my opinion, social justice is intrinsically tied to economic justice. Um, and then in another lens, I'm thinking about, of course, transitioning our military community. We have a sizable military veteran community in the Kidsap Corridor in particular, um, and helping those veterans transition out of the military into the civilian workforce. Um, I've actually had conversations with some folks in terms of you know, transitioning uh, transferable skills from the military into, say, cybersecurity jobs, um, where there's a lot of transferable skills. And so there's several areas uh, that we could touch upon as a legislator. Um, so there's some areas where I'd like to start. Okay, terrific. And, you know, we just got a, a viewer question that touched on a point that you just made. So, Colton, we'll, we'll stay with you for the moment. Uh, Scott asks, the current administration is trying to find creative ways to export the DREAMers. What can be done to ensure our DREAMers are protected locally? And and I would expand that and ask, what can we do to protect our, our immigrant neighbors generally as well? Well, one, we need to reassert that they belong, that they're part of our community, especially for our dreamers who have known no other home but this one. Um, you know, I heard a horrific story that was told to me um, from a member of the SEIU who was watching a school bus and these two young children came home uh, to find out that mom and dad had been confiscated by ICE and deported um, right here in Mason County. Um, and we have other pockets in Mason County where immigrants are living, uh, you know, in these apartment complexes where landlords effectively, you know, bully them, threaten them, uh, you know, threaten to expose them. Um, so first and foremost, we need to reassert that they are part of this community, that they strengthen our community. Uh, we need representatives who stand with and for them because we are a country of immigrants first and foremost. Um, but again, it's reasserting as a state. I think that Washington you know, has done a relatively decent job in terms of, you know, reasserting again, we stand, you know, for DACA, that, you know, the Keep Washington Working Act, of course, was about protecting immigrant workers. I think we need to be building upon that again, especially in Mason County, where, you know, in the city of Shelton, we're coming up to now about one in four residents being uh, Latinx. So we, you know, have to do our job to promote uh, diversity within our communities, to promote, um, you know, equity and inclusiveness. That's something that, you know, neither Representative Griffey nor neither Representative McEwen have been interested in doing at all. Uh, same question then to you, Darcy. Uh, what would you like to do to protect our, our DREAMers, uh, our DACA recipients locally, and also our immigrant community as well? Sure. So uh, I think this is one place where we can use our faith community. So um, I, I'll shout out a little bit about my Lutheran um, ties here. Uh, Lutheran Immigration and, Re and Refugee Services is one of the largest um, immigration uh, organizations in the United States. It's second only to Catholic Community Services. So one of the things that we have done in the Olympia area um, is to create sanctuary churches and sanctuary um, synagogues. And we have kept 
uh, it is a safe place for people to go to uh, to get a, if when they are feeling that they are um, in danger, and um, and creating those types of spaces and working together with the with the faith community is can be a really very powerful thing um, to do. Uh, one of the things that we did in my church was to bring in an organization called Cielo, uh, which helps which um, works with uh, Latinx um, communities and um, and we created a, a safe space for them to come and and we'll continue to work with with them as well. I'm going to fold a couple of questions here together because we're running a little bit short on time and both of you have talked about uh, the climate uh, from certain angles and I, I want to get a little more specific and I'll give you an extra, uh, maybe like an extra 30 seconds, like a, two minutes and 30 seconds to kind of unpack this. Um, so Janet asks, how do you address the environmental concerns facing our region, clean water, land management, etc.? And I would fold in the competing need for housing and upgraded infrastructure in the 35th and how they're often framed in opposition to environmental issues. And I would I would just ask you your thoughts on how you balance growth issues with the need to protect what, what is inarguably just an unbelievably beautiful part of the state. Uh, Darcy, let's start with you. Well, nobody can be against clean water and clean air. So I think that that's one of the things that we need to talk about more. Um, a lot of times when we talk about uh, the environmental protecting the environment, uh, people kind of shut their ears. They don't want to hear about it, right? Because, oh, those greeners, they're blah, 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 right? So what, we're, so what we need to do is really to use language that is, that is, um, that is um, amenable to them. So when we, talk about, when we talk about the environment, let's talk about clean air and clean water. And again, the Growth Management Act, which we talked about a little bit earlier, uh, was, is one of those acts that uh, really help protect that. And so with a little bit of fine tuning with that, we need to take a look at building houses where they're already existing. We need to be building more multifamily homes than single family homes. We need to be, we need to be building in areas uh, where there is already infrastructure. We need to be building in areas that are close to transit stations so that, that people can uh, don't have to use cars to get to work. We need to have industry in our in our communities um, that uh, that at, that are near uh, where homes can be. So I think that we we used to think about about not having that, that manufacturing and housing does not cannot coexist, but it can now because we have better, um, it's cleaner and it's quieter. And so we can really truly create communities around, uh, around an industry and, um, and that all helps the environment. Well, Colton, I guess I'll phrase it to you this way, uh, dovetailing on Darcy's point. Do you see those two things in opposition? Do you see uh, the need to protect the environment in opposition to the need for affordable housing and upgraded infrastructure? And and, and then maybe unpack a little bit about how you would make uh, progress on one and protect the other. Yeah. Uh, short answer is no, I don't see them as in opposition. Um, I believe that you can champion safeguarding our environment and you know, safeguarding our environment and planning for regional growth are not mutually exclusive ideals. Um, you know, you can, you know, plan for, you know, density 
that reduces, you know, long-term costs of providing public services. You know, when you look at density planning, it can reduce costs of sewage in a place like Mason County. Um, it reduces costs for, say, our fire services, which I have to say is a little ironic that um, my opponent is so vehemently opposed to the Growth Management Act in its entirety, considering he is a firefighter. Um, and this density planning is actually good for fire services. Um, and, you know, it also, as Darcy mentioned, you know, density planning around transit hubs, it not only reduces carbon emissions, it reduces costs of transportation, um, you know, and in addition to reducing community time and, and community traveling time. Um, and so, no, I, I don't believe that these are mutually exclusive ideals. I think one of the important things with transitioning to a green economy in any instance is making sure that our stakeholders are at the table. Um, you know, that includes our local businesses like our shellfish industry who are going to have their concerns about what transitioning to a green economy looks like and density planning, as well as, you know, working with our tribal communities, working with the Skokomish and the Squaxin Island tribes who in a lot of these conversations get left out. Um, and so I think that is one of the key components when we are having these conversations is making sure that we're looking at who's at the table um, and ensuring that everyone kind of has a voice in in smart density planning while also safeguarding our environment. Because to your point, you're absolutely right. We live in a very beautiful part of our state. You know, the Olympic National Park runs through Mason County. Uh, where I grew up in Kitsap, I always saw, you know, the Olympics. So I feel very spoiled in the sense that I've been surrounded by such majestic awe of our community. And I, of course, want to safeguard that. We, we can do that while planning smartly for uh, anticipated population growth. Thank you. Thank you both for those uh, tremendous answers. Uh, let's shift gears entirely and move on to health care. The pandemic has shown real weaknesses. Uh, it's exposed lots and lots of fault lines in our for-profit health care system, uh, especially with insurance that is tied to employment. Um, Colton, let's start with you. Universal single-payer health care for all Washingtonians. How do you get there? Yeah, so I'll start off by saying, one, uh, I do support universal coverage for Washingtonians. I want to say I am proud that we live in a state that's constantly leading the charge when it comes to innovating our healthcare delivery system. Uh, you know, I'm proud to be in a state that's a leader. We're the first to pass a public option, of course. Uh, we are one of the first states to expand Medicaid. Uh, and we're one of the first states to pass a single payer for children through Apple Health. Uh, and to your point, as you mentioned, COVID-19 has exacerbated the gaps in our healthcare delivery system. I saw that, you know, I saw the gaps prior to COVID working on the inside of healthcare industry. And now we're seeing those gaps even more exacerbated. Um, and I will say I'm proud to be from an agency that's also leading discussions around uh, universal healthcare. What I, what I want to preface and, and be very careful with saying is I don't know what explicitly Washington State's um, system will look like. I think being from the inside, you know, I've seen and known firsthand conversing with some of the top healthcare leaders that they believe there's multiple routes to achieving universal coverage. You know, some people think maybe our system will look more like Canada. Maybe our system will look more like Germany that still keeps in some private market insurers. I don't think anyone has a one-size competent answer yet for our state in particular. But what I will say, of course, is I support these conversations. And my main priority is fighting to ensure everyone has quality, affordable health care. And I want to work to find the best way to get there. 
Darcy, uh, same question to you then. Do you support universal single-payer health care for Washingtonians? And if you do, how would how do you see the route to get there? Um, I absolutely do. I spent eight years in Germany where they have excellent health care. So I've seen it work. I've seen it work well. And uh, I 100 um, percent support that. I think one of the first steps that we can do is to expand Apple Health. Um, and I say that because I had a conversation today with a woman. It's not my first conversation about this, that um, that she made uh, she made too she made too much money to have Apple Health, right? But she didn't make enough money to pay the exorbitant price of premiums for private health care. So she's stuck in the middle. So she gets her her kids are in Apple Health. But she is not, and her and her partner is also not in Apple Health. So if if a, so so they're not covered. So if there was a catastrophic um, healthcare issue for them, they would just be out of luck. So nobody should fall through the cracks. So I think the first thing that we need to do is make sure that nobody is falling through that healthcare crack. Uh, I think the other, I think another thing that we need to do is to have some, uh, is to limit the amount of co-pays that healthcare, that the health insurance companies can charge to people. Again, we have people with fixed incomes that can either pay their property taxes or pay their co-pay for their asthma medication. I mean, these are these are stories that I have heard over and over and over again, and we and we have to do something about it. So, two steps. First one, let's make, uh, make Apple Health um, available to more people, and let's get some kind of pricing uh, mechanism in on uh, on insurances, or insurance, or on on medication, so that they are affordable so that people can have a quality of life. I mean, can you just imagine not being able to have, you're 80 years old and you can't have your asthma medication? It, I, it just is appalling to me and we have to do something about it. Okay, we are in a little bit of a time crunch here and it's unfortunate because we have some very meaty questions. So I'm gonna ask a favor of both of you. If you could kind of keep your answers as tight as possible on, uh, I, I have like maybe three or four more questions and I would really love to get to them if we can uh, with the time that we have remaining. Uh, and let's let's start with, with our tax system. Darcy, we'll start with you here. Washington has the most regressive tax system in the nation. This is a statistic that every time I hear it, I, I, I just, there's a question mark over my head. How? How is this possible? Our, our lowest income citizens pay 36% of their income in taxes. The wealthiest pay only 6%. What specifically would you propose to make our tax system more equitable? So the short answer is it's time for the Republicans to stop making taxes a wedge issue, right? So it's time for us to actually do something about it. And so there is no time like now to make that happen because we will need to have new sources of of revenue in order to make it through this horrible time that we've got. So we all need to come to the table with all the ideas that we have, and we need to come to the table with the with the idea that we're going to solve this problem and not that we're just going to continue to make it a wedge issue that divides us. Because right now, our livelihoods and our lives depend on it. 
Same question to you, Colton. Uh, ideas uh, to make our tax system more equitable here in Washington. Yeah, and to your point, I I swear I sometimes in the middle of the night say Washington has the most regressive tax code in the nation. It was something that was so ingrained in me in grad school. Um, there are two approaches to this, a short term and a long term. The short term is we have to get our state solvent. We have to be able to pay our basic needs and necessities. I believe one of the formats to get there is we need to start closing corporate loopholes. We are not going to shoulder the burden and cut our way out of this recession by hurting working families. It's time that wealthy pay their fair share in this economy. We have two of the wealthiest men in the world living in this state who are not paying their fair share. So short term, closing corporate loopholes. Long term, we need to fundamentally restructure our tax code. We are overly reliant on our sales and property tax. That hurts communities like Mason County. It hurts communities like Kitsap and Thurston. It hurts working class families across the board. We need a a tax code that is going to rebalance and make wealthy pay their fair share. One possible solution, of course, is a capital gains that is going to make the wealthy pay their fair share and rebalance our code so that working families see a relief from the sales and property tax. And, uh, you know, as conversations that Darcy and I have both had, property taxes are obviously a huge concern in Mason County. Um, and I will say, you know, my opponent in very recently when the opportunity came up to lower property taxes, he voted against it. And he has showed no willingness to come up with a workable solution. So we need representatives in those seats who are going to come up with workable solutions. And those are my two proposals, short-term and long-term. As we know, we are looking down the barrel of a uh, at least an $8.8 billion budget shortfall over the next three years due to COVID. Let's frame education around this, our our paramount duty here in the state. Um, How will you work, Colton, to make sure that schools in the 35th get the funding that they need, especially the schools in the rural areas? Yeah, you know, I was actually reading a very um, sobering article article within the Shelton Mason Journal that said, you know, the Shelton School District was looking at cuts as large as 16.5% going into the 2021 school year. That's about $10.7 million. Um, In addition to being tasked with all these methods during this pandemic, where teachers are having to be creative and innovative with giving our child a uh, quality education. Um, As you mentioned, it's an obligation of our state to give everyone a quality, affordable Uh, education, we are not living up to that promise. We are underfunding our public education by hundreds of millions of dollars. And more horrifying, we are underfunding special education by hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, My budget professor used to tell me, if you want to know about a person's values, look at their budgets. What does it say about our values that we continue to underfund our public education? As a legislator, my main priority is fully funding our public education system. Again, That means we need to look at our short-term solvency, of course, for the state in closing these corporate loopholes, but we need to look at long-term sustainable funding or else we're going to get another Supreme Court smackdown here in the coming years because we're going to be in the red again and nobody will have come up with a long-term solution. So again, we need to rebalance our tax code so that we can actually fulfill our promise to the young people living in this state. Yeah, that's I, that's exactly right. And these, these of course, are very interconnected issues, uh, which is why I put those questions back to back. Uh, Darcy, uh, your take on this, uh, especially given our budget shortfalls, how are you going to work to make sure that the schools in your district get the funding that they, that they need? And especially, I will emphasize again, the schools in the rural parts of your district. Yeah, it is a problem. And I totally agree with Colton that we that we'll never really be able to fully fund our schools until we do something about uh, our income stream. And 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 it's a and it's a shame. And 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 yes, we absolutely need to do something about it. 
I'd like to throw out there that we really don't even know how much school is going to cost us this year because we don't really know what it's going to look like. So we could be even in a further shortfall than um, the $10 million that that, uh, that that we are talking about now. I'd like to also say that uh, the 35th district touches 18 school districts from tip from top to bottom. It's a huge, huge issue. And so it doesn't only talk, it doesn't only touch touch Mason and but it also touches uh, some of the rural schools in um, in Thurston County and in Kitsap County as well. So every school has every school district is a little bit different and um, and that's why it's so important that we allow for them to make their ideas on how to, to make sure that school is is um, happening in, in their districts and when they figure that out then we'll know exactly what the shortfall is so I think that it is super important that we fully fund our schools um, our kids are already behind now because they because they missed so much of school, and um, and we're just going to have to do everything that we possibly can in order to fully fund those schools um, this year and next year as well. You know, something that was related to our earlier discussion about economic development. Uh, it was broadband, and it's also very very much connected to education as well. Um, this is this is an economic issue. This is an equality issue. How would you like to see broadband access broadened, Darcy? So I think broadband ought to be a public utility. I think it should be, and and I am not the only person thinking about that. Every single candidate I know, at least every sing, single Democratic candidate that I know, is talking about broadband. Um, it has always been an issue, but it's always been an issue that's kind of been on the back burner because there are so many other little fires to put out everywhere. So, but now it is right on the front burner. So there is, this is not a quick fix. You're not going to be able to get, you're not going to be able to get um, broadband done, you know, as a utility next year or the year after that, or maybe even the year after that. It's going to take some time because you've got so many people that you've got to get to the table, but we need right now. And there are some other fixes that that are not perfect, but are but are pretty good. PUD3 did a great job of putting out hotspots in, uh, in Mason County. I mean, applauding to them because they spent some money on that and, and they certainly increased that. But we will never, Mason County, parts of Thurston County, parts of, of, of uh, Kitsap County as well, we will never be able to compete in um, in in industry until we get broadband that actually works and and so we're just going to have to do it and we're going to have to do it as quickly as possible but we're also going to need to do it right. You know, Colton, from our discussions uh, pre-interview, uh, I I trust that you agree with pretty much everything that Darcy is saying. I'm wondering if there's anything you'd like to add to that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I also would like to give a shout out to Mason PUD3. I think they've been doing a lot of great work in trying to do the best they can uh, with expanding access. To me, again, I think it's unfortunate that it took a global pandemic for us to decide that broadband is in fact an essential service. Uh, but I'm happy that we are finally at the point where we are not only discovering that it's an essential service, but that it's been this tool to decide the have and have nots in our society. 
Um, and I think we're finally having a conversation around the necessity of broadband. I definitely believe it should be a public utility. I think one of the main conversations going into this, kind of as Darcy alluded to, was whose role is it going to be to address that? Um, in fact, we kind of at HCA were already questioning our role in addressing some of these inequities. You know, we're talking, of course, at HCA, how we've been expanding telehealth and telebehavioral health, uh, which have become essential services and are likely here to stay in the aftermath of this pandemic. Um, and so we're kind of looking at from HCA's perspective, what is our role uh, in, in expanding broadband? Do we need to build a coalition of efforts with Department of Education, Department of Health, uh, all of which kind of touch into uh, the necessity of internet access and broadband of an essential service. And so I think that really, you know, it is going to be sort of a coalition of efforts that culminates in legislative action that not only, of course, identifies broadband as a public utility, but also works together to outline uh, the exact responsibilities for streamlining that transition towards broadband as a public utility. You know, my final questions, I had two final questions for both of you for the end of the night, but it occurs to me that they're very much intertwined. I was going to ask you about the importance of union endorsements, and then I was going to ask you essentially how you run and win in your district as a Democrat in 2020. Uh, but it occurs to me that, that these are that there's a lot of interconnect with these two questions because the 35th used to be a very white working class district and was a Democratic stronghold. It has since become a working class, class Republican district. So, Colton, we'll, we'll start with you on this. Talk a little bit about the importance of the union endorsements, why you feel that they chose to endorse you and how you feel that may help you win as a Democrat in, in the 35th in 2020. Yeah, well, to provide some context, uh, we were very heartened that uh, this past week, the Washington Federation of State Employees decided to uh, ditch backing the incumbents, which they have done in the last couple of cycles, and decided to endorse myself and Darcy. Uh, same thing happened for me with SEIU uh, 775. They previously backed Griffey in 2018 and decided to flip and endorse me in this cycle. Uh, you know, I can tell you what they told me in terms of they thought I was depth in policy and you know wasn't going into the legislature with needing too much of a learning curve but i think the reality is they resonated with our message they resonated with our values uh they resonated with the fact that for too long working class families in the 35th district especially in mason county have been left behind and taken for granted we have ineffective leadership who are not bringing the opportunities um, to the 35th LD. And I think that that message is catching on. I think that we're in a prime opportunity, both given the election year and during this pandemic, that people are looking for something different and they're looking for solutions. Um, and so I believe that these unions are, you know, supporting us because they believe that we are going to, you know, champion the our shared ideals, our shared objectives to lift our community members up here in the 35th. Uh, in terms of winning, of course, again, uh, you know, I think it's a prime year both being an election year, a presidential election year, where uh, the top of the ticket is not particularly popular, although you know it is to be noted that Trump did carry Mason County in 2016, uh, but it also is a county that voted for Obama in 2008 and 2012, which tells you these are people who are not you know radical extremists. These are people who want to be heard and be seen, and I think these are a lot of people who bought into this economic populism and our representatives rode that wave. And now people are waking up and seeing the reality and they're seeing that our district is falling behind continuously by every metric. And I think that they're looking for someone who actually cares about their community. And I think that they're going to see that Darcy and I are those candidates who care about our community and will win. And, uh, you know, just to the how do you win in a red district? 
I think that just goes to the broader point of so many times people ask the question, well, how can you elect a black president? How can you do this? You do it by winning. Uh, you know, we didn't, we said we couldn't have a black president until we elected a black president. We said we couldn't, you know, land on the moon until we landed on the moon. Uh, all we have to do is win. And and we, we win by sharing our story, by resonating with people through our shared values and by connecting with as many people as possible. Because I do believe at the end of the day, we are going to win these seats because people are tired of falling behind in our community. Darcy, I'm going to go ahead and give you the last word and sort of let you fold those two questions together in terms of the importance of union endorsements and how you feel that may be key to winning as a Democrat in the 35th. So I grew up in a union home. I know that Colton also did. Um, And so and I have lived in states where there are um, in this state, of course, where there was um, were strong unions. And I have lived in Kansas where there are not strong unions and you don't have to be very old to understand the difference. So I know what a good, strong union family looks like. And I want that for every single family in Washington state, whether it's in my district or any district. And I think that when I talk to union members, that they know that that is really where my heart is. And, um, and so along with, uh, along with uh, WFSI that we got this week, I was also endorsed by the Washington uh, State Labor Council in uh, May, which was uh, a, a big thing for me because uh, because coming from a union home, I know that uh, my dad is up in heaven doing the yippee skippy dance. To say so, I think that is. I think that is really important. I also think that one of the things that they liked uh, about me was was that um, I am not necessarily driven by party politics, but that I want to help people, and 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 I think that that is so important to uh, to have that out there. That I, I this is not about me. This is about everybody out there in the thirty first. This is everybody else out there in Washington state. I want to help people make their lives better. And union family wage jobs are the way to really do that. And um, and so I want to increase uh, the opportunity that I had as a kid to have a, to have a mom and dad or a dad or a mom that, that made enough money so that we didn't have to worry about where our next meal was coming from or worry about childcare or worry about all of those kinds of things. I want that life for everybody. And, um, and so I just think that they felt like I could do that. Um, from a winning perspective, um, I think that Mason County, I think that the 35th is a little more purple than it was in, in 2018. There have been a lot of people who have moved into in the Mason County and I think they're hungry for something different. Right. We have not had a seat at the table where decisions are made for eight years. And and we and and the 35th has paid for that. Right. So we need to have a seat at the table where we can talk about rural issues. And and it's not just in 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 Mason County or, or Thurston County or Kitsap County, but it's all over Washington. So more and more Washingtonians are realizing that uh, rural means having to seat at the table and let's get people in there. And then if we can have enough rural seat, 
people at the table, then our voices will be louder than anybody else's and we can get the things that will help us in the 35th. What great words to leave it on. Before I let you go, uh, give us your, uh, the URL for your website, please. So mine is uh, DarcyHuffman.com. Okay. Um, and uh, and you can follow me on Facebook, too, at Friends of Darcy Huffman. Okay, terrific. And Colton, uh, how can we learn more about you? Absolutely. You can go to my website at Elect Colton Myers, M-Y-E-R-S, because I know people like to spell it M-E-Y, M-Y-E-R-S.com. Uh, I'm also on Facebook uh, slash Colton for Wah. Well, you are both just wonderful, and this has just been so, such a, a tremendous discussion. Thank you for joining us tonight, Darcy Huffman, Colton Myers. It's been really, really a pleasure. Thank you for thank having you. us. Yes, thank you so much for elevating our voices in this district. Thank you again to Kat Pipkin with the Washington Indivisible Network and Julie Andrzejewski with Indivisible Tacoma. A reminder to join us on Tuesday, July 7th for a town hall with Democratic candidates from the 30th Legislative District. Find more information at the Washington State Indivisible Podcast community on Facebook. And that is it for today. Our website is indivisiblepodcast.org and our email address is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative Inc. and is part of the Demcast Podcast Network. Learn more more about Demcast at DemcastUSA.com. Special thanks to Lori Caldwell, and as always, my thanks to all of you for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.